my friends. It is April 10th, 2022. You're tuned into Canadian Patriot Radio, and I'm your host, Chris. So what are we going to do today, my friends? We are going to focus on the fact that the Ottawa police and the federal parliament has been caught in so many lies in the last week, it's absolutely staggering. Um, we're actually going to open the show with, um, I believe his name is Dane Lloyd. He goes at the interim police police chief, uh, Bell, about supposedly the firearms that were um, supposed to be, have been found in the vehicles of protesters. And uh, yeah, you guys, you guys have all probably seen this clip already, but it's worth revisiting because it should stay fresh in all our minds because they have done nothing but lie from start to finish about this whole scenario. Uh, we're also going to look at the fact that Christia Freeland just simply cannot let go of her money-seizing ability. Um, <clears throat> this girl is going to single-handedly drag us into war with Russia if she keeps doing what she's doing, which she wants. <clears throat> Make no doubt about it. And then we are going to do a highlight of a specific W uh, World Economic Forum advisor Yuval Noah Harari. Now, most of you have probably heard clips by this guy um, <clears throat> already. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to uh, we're going to listen to him speak at the World Economic Forum. We're going to listen to him speak at Harvard. Uh, we're we're going <clears> to <throat> highlight the fact that he he goes much deeper than some of the clips that you've heard, and he he tries to cover it by by uh, speaking in democratic terms. But you know. You don't get onto the World Economic Forum if you're not a psycho-sociopath. This guy fits the mold. We are going to highlight him because he is very he's a very troubling individual that is basically advising uh, people like Klaus Schwab, who in turn uh, has bragged about the fact that he's got complete control of the, um, the at least the liberal side of the Canadian Parliament. So we might as well familiarize ourselves with um, the guy that is basically advising the puppeteer for the liberals that ma or the fascists that masquerade as liberals in this country. But like I said, what we're going to do first is we're going to open with uh, <clears throat> interim chief bell being put in the hot seat. Uh, very, a very, uh, good job done by Dane on this one. So, and, uh, just, uh, hats off to chef for finding this. This was a very, very interesting clip. Um, and should be enraging to all Canadians that see it. Uh, interim chief slowly, or sorry, Interim Chief uh, Bell, my apologies. Um, in Ottawa, during the uh, protest clearing operation, were any loaded shotguns found in the trucks of protesters? Uh, Mr. Chair, what I can indicate is uh, throughout the protest, we did receive information and, and intelligence around weapons uh, and the possession of weapons by people that either had attended or intended on attending uh, the occupation. As a result of the clearing, at no point did we lay any firearms-related charges, yet there are investigations that continue in relation to weapons possessions at the occupation. I guess, yes or no, Interim Chief, were loaded firearms found in the trucks during the protest clearing operation? Yes, sir. So as I as I indicated, Mr. Chair, there there has been no charges laid to date in relations to weapons at the occupation site. It's it's just a clear it's a clear question, interim chief. Like, were weapons found? Like, were fire loaded firearms found? Yes or no? 
So in relation to, no, not to relating to any charges to this point. Thank you, Chief. That's very illuminating. On March 19th, this past Saturday, a reporter, Justin Lang, wrote in the Toronto Star, quote, that police sources indicated that loaded shotguns were found in trucks at the Ottawa protest. Is this false information? So I'm unfamiliar with the quote you're referring to, but as I indicated before, we have, we received intelligence information, continue criminal investigations, and no charges have been laid to date in relation to firearms. But the article claims that a police source told journalists that loaded shotguns were found in trucks during the protest clearing operation, and you have said to this committee that that is in fact not the case, that loaded shotguns were not found in trucks during the protest clearing operation. Is that the case, Interim Chief? So thank you for the question. Mr. Chair, as I indicated, we received intelligence information. I'm unclear around the source information that was received for that article or the corroboration around it, but we have not laid any charges in relation. Can you clarify, Interim Chief, speaking on the record, not off the record, that loaded shotguns were not found in the vehicles during the protest operation? Can you confirm that? So yet, consistent with my answer previously, yes, I can confirm to date no charges have been laid. If there had been, if there had been firearms found, would the government have been made aware of that, as far as you know? Would the cabinet have been made aware of that if there had been firearms found? Well, our normal course of action would be that we would conduct an investigation and charges would be laid, and as a result of those charges, there would be public notifications of those charges. We wouldn't specifically notify any level of government as to the course or the conclusion of any investigation. But they would have been immediately aware if you had found firearms, correct? So there would have been public notifications made. So we had a cabinet minister, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Mark Miller, retweeted that article from Justin Ling from the Toronto Star, claiming that there were loaded shotguns found in trucks. This is misinformation, Chief, and I submit to the committee, misinformation being spread by a journalist and misinformation being spread by a member of this government. And I'll just close my remarks and give my time to Mr. Shipley. So there you have it. The federal government has been busted once again, spreading lies and misinformation and fake news. Not only the government, but the Ottawa police as well. So they're obviously working in collaboration with each other. And, you know, this interim police chief, I got to say, the way, you know, for those of you that have seen this clip, the way this guy dances around in his chair, you can tell he's just a sleaze. Like, he's trying his best to run cover for this corruption, which he is obviously probably neck deep into himself. And he's busted. He's busted six ways to Sunday. There's no getting out of it. And he ends up having to cough up the answer. And then Dane Lloyd does a great job in taking it a step further and exposing the fact that members of the opposite party, which would be the fascists masquerading as liberals, had reposted the story. So that you've got members of parliament that are reposting lies and fake news in the Canadian government. How professional is that? It's a very, very interesting turn of events this last week in Canada that, you know, if we had an actual media in this country would be covering and would be holding the government's feet to the fire. 
over the fact that they in, <clears throat> basically induced the Emergencies Act uh, to deal with peaceful protesters. There's no other way to put it, which would be classified as tyrannical. Not that uh, confiscating uh, people's bank accounts and holding them in jail uh, with no charges uh, <clears throat> wouldn't constitute that as well, but... <laughs> You know, and denying bail and, and just the stupid crap that we see uh, from from the every every avenue of of our law enforcement, our government and our judi- judicial branch. Uh, they all work in collaboration. The judges are obviously appointed uh, based on their uh, willingness to participate in a uh, uh, Canadian uh, or a widespread Canadian corruption. Anyway, my friends, we're going to stay on this story. Um, we'll, uh, we'll return with another article that uh, also highlights this uh, right after the opening. We'll be right back. Welcome, friends, to Canadian Patriot Radio, where conspiracy is not theory and political corruption finds the spotlight. CPR, we are committed to upholding Canadians' God-given rights to life, liberty, and freedom with all thy sons. Command. Welcome back, my friends. We're going to stay on on uh, the topic of the pre-show, and we're going to move over to a National Post article written by Rex Murphy, and the title reads, Will anyone apologize for falsely accusing truckers of attempting attempted arson in Ottawa? Uh, Rex Murphy wrote this on April 8th, 2022. This week, we found out that the attempt to burn down an apartment building in Ottawa, which was so wide, widely and wildly heralded during the Freedom Convoy protest, had nothing to do with the truckers. Please let that sink in. At the time, such was the volume of assumption, innuendo, and outright allegation from everyone from Nanaimo, BC to Nain, Newfoundland. 
form the impression that this despicable action and outrage by any standard was the work of the truckers. Not true. False. Nothing to do at all with the protesters. It was allegedly the work of two Ottawa miscreants who were working alone. <clears throat> you will easily remember that the most grisly feature of this attempt to set the building uh, alight, the affair was caught on security cameras and made it all over the internet, was that the handles of the exit doors were taped shut so that they, if they had been successful, residents would not be able to escape the inferno. Those who, saw, those who saw that could not forget just how vicious the deed was meant to be and could not help but deplore the type of person who would cont contemplate such a thing. A lot of the contempt and anger is stirred, uh, it stirred was directed towards the innocent protesters. It's important to note this. By Wednesday, however, we knew that all suspicions about the truckers, all condemn condemnations that showered forth from the House of Commons, all the fulmination of the Mayor of Ottawa, all the jaundiced comments on Twitter were wrong. <clears throat> After Ottawa police arrested a second person in relation to the arson, who was not known to be connected to the protest in any way. Keep in mind that the Ottawa police themselves had never alleged that the crime had anything to do with the Freedom Convo Convoy. All who did, did so on their own. Also keep in mind, as one of the most dramatic incidents of the entire protest, it offered a very convenient uh, contributing pretext for the declaration of the Emergencies Act. These two malicious gits allegedly attempting to light the whole apartment building on fire and locking everyone inside certainly contributed to the atmosphere in which calling down the full power of the emergency legislation was easy to do. Consider the words of our current coalition Prime Minister, Jagmeet Singh, on this event. Singh had no doubt who was behind this arson. Here he is in his own extravagant and completely erroneous words speaking on the convoy protest in the House of Commons. This convoy protest is not a peaceful, peaceful protest. Violence is commonplace. We saw an example of this violence with an attempted arson of a downtown apartment building where people started a fire and taped the doors closed where, uh, when they exited. I asked members to take a moment to think about what that means. They had the forethought to set fire and then tape the doors so no one could escape. This is not isolated. There are ongoing examples. You add Singh's incendiary charges to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's brutal descriptions of the protesters, racist, homophobe, homophobes, misogynists, etc., and the alarmist rhetoric coming from MPs and the Mayor of Ottawa, and it is easy to see how the Emergencies Act found so much support. Well, now that the Central Act, the biggest scare of the whole ordeal, has been established as have, having nothing to do with the malign truckers, will there be apologies from all those concerned? Will there be statements of regret about hastily maligning a large peaceful protest? One other key point, does this kind of wild accusation made without proof fall under the government's newfound concern for misinformation? Will the government work to prevent such maligned mistrusts from being spread among its own ranks with the same vigor in which it will surely go after its foes? Let me use an old and possibly faded expression, not in a month of Sundays. Clearly, we desperately need uh, public inquiry into why the Emergencies Act got called into play. We need to know the assumptions on which it was based, and we, and we need to know why it was hauled down before the Senate had a chance to vote on it. We need to know, in essence, if the Trudeau government wielded such a big hammer for its own convenience on a protest it had demonized, and that had been perhaps um, fatally slandered by the most outrageous allegation of all 
that its members were willing to burn a building while barring the exits. Whether given the recent NDP uh, liberal nuptials, we are ever likely to see a real... We are ever likely to see a real inquiry at this point. I shall give up to be honest readers, uh, to, up to the honest readers to determine. Uh, no, we won't. <clears throat> we won't. And uh, you know what? I'm going to take the, take this uh, a few steps further. I would I would seriously encourage uh, any members of the trucker convoy that have the ability uh, to maybe press slander. And uh, defamation charges against Jagmeet Singh. If you have the ability, you've got you've got a solid case here. Um, or anybody that knows some of the truckers that were or the peaceful protesters that were downtown, um, man, if you've got access and the means to to take a case to Jagmeet Singh over his comments in the House of Commons, I would encourage anybody to do so. Uh, this guy needs to be made an example of. He is. He's almost worse than just an idiot. He he. This guy is straight fascist. There's no, there's no uh, ands, ifs, or buts about it. Um, many of you have heard me refer to the the first thing when Jagmeet Singh uh, was awarded the leadership of the NDP federal party. The first thing that came out of his mouth was, "Now, okay, how do we force a climate tax on Saskatchewan?" That's the first thing that that the first thing on the record that that guy said. Tell me that that's not a straight up fascist immediately immediately once he's in power he's talking about forcing unwanted policy on provinces that didn't want it this guy right here i i encourage anybody that was there downtown if you've got the means if you've got a bit of money tucked away that you could you could slap this guy with slander and defamation charges please please i am begging people to do it he is begging to be to be drug into the courts by his beard and and have to face the music for that we need to start holding these fascists that masquerade as canadian democratic politicians to 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 account and this and if we could get him oh man i would be so happy now let's uh let's 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 just get a little theoretical here what are the odds what are the odds that this wasn't an op? What do you think about that, my friends? What do you think? What are the odds that these two miscreants, as Rex Murphy calls them, what are the odds that they were probably employed by uh, who's who's to who knows uh, a division of, of of the Trudeau government? I'm just speculating, of course. But we know we know through um, the Nova Scotia shooting uh, that they are full well willing to do very very deviant deeds to get what they want through uh is it is it is it much of a stretch when you start thinking in the terms of the the nova scotia shooting when you think about the fact that the rcmp basically got caught uh being involved in that you know still speculating but uh the fact that one of their informants was the shooter is uh i don't you know it's it's hard not to not to make that connection if you really want 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 to know what I'm getting at there. But is it much is it much of a stretch to assume that they hired two two down and out guys that were willing to do just about anything? Or odds are they were they were already coached uh probably for a very long time and uh were recruited to do this to actually pin it on the truckers. Do you think that that's a stretch after knowing 
not only not only the shooting in Nova Scotia, never forget the the High River gun grab, my friends. Never forget what the RCMP has already been caught doing. Using the gun legislation to kick down specific doors in High River when the fucking town was flooded and they were going after uh, restricted firearms. That's exactly what they were doing, and they just pretend that we all are going to forget about that. They, they, they think that if they don't talk about specific things, we're going to forget about it. We don't. And some of us will never, will never forget uh, the breach of trust that the RCMP did in High River. Not to mention, now you've got the, the shooting in Nova Scotia, where they're fucking balls deep involved in, in an operation, uh, basically to ban firearms in this country. The RCMP, that is. Probably taking their marching orders from, from our Canadian government or members of. Speculating, of course. I have, to, I have to put that in there because I don't need CSIS kicking down my door saying I'm making accusations. What I'm doing is I'm theorizing. But do you think it's a stretch? I don't at all. At all. Not for one second do I think it's a stretch that, that, that they would have put a couple guys up to that just to pin it on the truckers so they could get their fascist measures through. And I, I doubt many of you disagree. <laughs> all right, my friends, we are going to keep our focus on the, uh, the fascists that masquerade as liberals, but this time we're going to go over to our deputy prime minister, uh, our journalist that is acting as our deputy, deputy prime minister that has a no-fly ban to Russia, I might add, uh, for her involvement in, you know, uh, <clears throat> basically turning Ukraine against Russia while she was over there a number of years ago. Um, <clears throat> this title reads, Russian assets must be seized, accounts of sexual violence chilling, says Freeland. This is by Amanda Connolly, and it was written on April 10th, 2022, which is today. Deputy Prime Minister and uh, Finance Minister Christian Freeland says there is no better source of extra funds for Ukraine's recovery from the Russian invasion than from the assets of those backing the war. In an interview with the West Bloc's Mercedes Stevenson, Freeland emphasized the proposal in the budget she tabled last week would allow Canada, Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs to not only freeze Russian assets, but seize them too. Um, let's just take a step out for a minute here. Um, how do you feel about um, Christian Freeland and uh, our Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, seizing Russian assets uh, from potentially probably Russian mobsters? As you guys, I'm sure you guys are well aware that, um, you know, the mob has pretty much infiltrated all of Russian government to some degree. Um, and uh, they're talking about uh, seizing the assets of these this type of personality or persona. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about Christian Freeland making decisions on behalf of your country uh, and you like that? And how do you think Russians are going to respond to it? You notice there's always this tough talk and we're, we're, we're going to throw it up. We're going to throw our jabs uh, clearly with our eyes closed. And we, anybody that's seen a street fight, anybody that's swinging with their eyes closed, well, it doesn't go very well. Um <clears throat> fully expecting that our opponent is just going to take the punch and roll over. I, I just, I, this blows my mind. Anyway, let's carry on. Right now we can freeze assets. What we need to, what we need to do is have the power to seize those assets, she said. Ukraine is going to need to be rebuilt, and I can think of no more appropriate source of funding that, for, the, for that rebuilding than the seized assets of, Rus of the Russian Central Bank and of Russian oligarchs. How are you... 
how are you ever going to seize the assets of the Russian Central Bank, considering that uh, Vladimir Putin pulled it out of the uh, interna- International Monetary Fund? How are you going to do that, Christian Freeland? And especially considering that he just put the ruble over to a gold-backed standard, how are you going to do that? Explain to me how you're going to do that. Being that you are the finance minister and you seem to have oh very little grasp on economics and financial uh, accountability, uh, how are you going to do that? Without starting a war. Let me add that. Let's make this a two-tier question. I'd love to sit... Oh my God. I would absolutely love <clears throat> to sit uh, in, in a press conference and ask questions like that to these people. I would My mic would be shut off so quick and I would be escorted probably directly to jail <laughs> before I even got the question out of my mouth. But it would be fun just to see the look in her face to ask her that once. <clears throat> Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine without cause on February 24th, 2022. Okay, so this is where Global takes over and they start uh, carrying the baton of the narrative. Uh, It was not without cause. You guys are fully aware of this. NATO started pushing uh, closer to the Russian border with uh, with arsenals of weaponry. Um, The Russians warned for years, years, we're talking like 15 years, that if they broke that treaty... That if they pushed closer to their border, they would invade. 15 fucking years, my friends, they warned. And they still did it. Not to mention that the West has been promoting um, Nazism among, amongst Ukrainians. We'll get into that too. Scores, of, scores are dead as a result. And the scale of the Russian butchery of Ukrainian citizen, citizen, uh, civilians has horrified the world and sparked the most direct challenge to the, to the basic tenets of international law since the Second World War. The Russians did that? Are you sure it's the Russians? Because what, are we, what did we learn from people on the ground in Ukraine, especially in Kiev in particular? We learned that the, that the, uh, <clears throat> the guns, ammo, and body armor that uh, Canada and the U.S. and all Western countries had sent to Ukraine ended up in the hands of criminals and gangs of Ukrainians. And they were the ones wreaking havoc on civilians. Is it the Russians? I don't know. I bet you there is probably some civilian casualties of the Russians that are in, in, in these places. That is bound to happen. And I'm not excusing it. But the bulk majority of civilian casualties, if you want my guess, is from Ukrainians. Since we armed them and we gave them all the ammo that they could possibly need... That's probably what's going on. And not to mention I've seen footage. I've seen footage of Ukrainian soldiers pulling over Ukrainian citizens and beating and, you know, it was, sh- it was short of murdering them, but they were beating the, the absolute ass out of them. And it was like, so this is Ukrainian on Ukrainian violence, and it's all being, being blamed on the Russians. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not, <clears throat> I am not justifying what Vla- Vladimir Putin is doing. I'm not trying to glorify v- Vladimir P- Putin. I know this is a hot topic. What I'm saying is... Absolutely everything coming out of our Western media is complete bullshit. And you can, you can actually find people online that are on the ground in these cities and <clears throat> Ukrainians themselves. And not to mention, I've had people from uh, uh, countries that border Ukraine reach out to me personally uh, because of some of my posts on Facebook thanking me for, for not taking the Western narrative and, and have shared um, professors from uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia that have foretold of this happening from Western governments for years now, <clears throat> for absolutely years. So there's a lot, there's a lot backing my opinion here. It's not just me going on a rant and a tirade. There's actually a lot of evidence that I've seen, uh, I've had shared with me. 
<clears throat> that that supports my my uh, my thought pattern on what is actually happening in Ukraine. Now, you know, the, the Russians still call it a special military operation. So what are they looking for? You know that they targeted the, the biolabs first. And then they went to Kiev, uh, you know, the city that they, you know, let me, let me point out something. If, if you're, if you're a, or like a crazy, uh, bloodthirsty uh, tyrant of a leader, how do, you, how do you attack a country? Do you, uh, do you put a convoy of tanks down a main highway and drive them as slow as possible, uh, you know, like giving days upon days of, of warning to the civilians of that city that yes, your your tanks are coming. The military is coming. Is that is that how you? Uh, <clears throat> if you're if you're the bloodthirsty tyrant that the me- the Western media portrays you as, is that the kind of uh, maneuvers you military maneuvers you make? If you're actually wiping out civilians, is that what you do? You give them days of warning that you're coming, like that? I wouldn't. I I would be doing airstrikes. I would do I would do what the U.S. does to to countries like Syria and Libya. That's what I would fucking do if I was a bloodthirsty tyrant. I would fucking use illegal cluster bombs like the U.S. does in Syria and Libya when they're when they're removing uh, someone they don't like, and that's that's how I would wipe them out. I wouldn't do what fucking Vladimir Putin does and drive a tank convoy down a main highway where all the news is covering it for days upon days and then finally show up and not even really do that much damage. <laughs> it's so stupid. You know, you can read between these lines so easily. It's funny. But anyway, as you can tell, as soon as Global took over and started pushing the narrative, I have a he- heck of a time reading this stuff and staying calm. But let's carry on with this this uh, rhetoric. <clears throat> Last month, Canada and allies formed the Russian, uh, formed the Russian elites, proxies, and oligarchs task force as a part of of a bid to seize and forfeit the assets of wealth of individuals backing Putin unprovoked inva- uh, Putin's unprovoked invasion. As part of that, the budget announced the government's intent to clarify the ability of Minister of Foreign Affairs to cause the forfeiture and disposal of assets held by sanctioned individuals and entities to support Canada's participation in the repo task force. Freeland said it is an effort to encourage allies to take similar steps to boost their own powers. And it complements the budget commitment of 500 million in additional military aid to Ukraine this year. 500 million. 500 million. Wow. We can't give our veterans more, but we're giving 500 million more to military aid in Ukraine. Now, don't get me wrong. I do like the support for the people that are suffering, but holy smokes. Especially when you already know, my friends, that they've armed... Uh, criminals and gangs, Ukrainian criminals and gangs. How do you feel about that? There is systemic rapes of women in Ukraine. Uh, <clears throat> there is systemic rapes of women in Ukraine are happening, and the accounts I've heard are just blood chilling. But it's important to face that and talk about it and be very clear about what we need to do to stop it. Now, we've had people on the ground tell- telling us the exact opposite that it's the Ukrainian criminals and gangs that are doing it. So, who do you believe? Personally, I believe the people on the ground that have no reason to lie. Unlike the Western media. Accounts of Russian soldiers raping Ukrainian women are growing. Human Rights Watch alone, with journalists at The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Times of London, have published horrifying reports about repeated rapes and sexual violence as weapons of war. <clears throat> oh boy. There's, there's a The Guardian, The New York Times, and The Times of London. So you've basically got... F- uh, false narrative pushing New York Times probably leading that pack uh, how many times has the New York Times been busted in the last six years for publishing uh, 
let's just look at the most recent, Nick Sandman. They just had to pay out, what, uh, $254 million to Nick Sandman for, uh, for lying about him? How much do you want to believe the New York Times about that? How much do you want to believe the people on the ground that are saying that it's actually Ukrainians? Uh, it's Ukrainian on Ukrainian violence and rapes. I don't know. Russia's, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has also uh, caused spillover into the uh, broader global economy, rolling supply chains already struggling to right themselves after the turmoil of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, it's just a cover. It's an absolute cover for the fact that they intentionally disrupted the supply chains. The uncertainty and volatility of that spillover, spurring inflation higher, upping gas and fuel prices, and further raising the costs of consumer products and foodstuffs, uh, was the central theme in the budget table by Freeland last last week as well. Uh, well, as far as I know, Canada is pretty pretty much self sufficient for oil out west, and um, the rest of our oil comes from uh, Saudi Arabia. So what 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 the fuck? What what would it matter if uh, Russian oil isn't coming to Canada? I don't I don't think we're getting a whole pile of it. <clears throat> In that budget, her second uh, second of the pandemic era, Freeland emphasized the need to brace for continued uncertainty amid inflation that is expected to remain high into next year. We started turning off the COVID support measures in October, and that was a very important moment. I was cons- I was conscious of then of its important. Fre- Freeland said, "This budget is sort of the mo- uh, moment where I stepped on the clutch and I slammed it into a different gear." Oh wow, whoop de doo. I don't know. There's so much. You can't believe a word that uh, our media reports and you can't believe a word coming out of our politicians' mouths. So where do you go with that? Besides what I just did and just pick it all right apart. (laughs) Some of you might agree with my thoughts. Some of you might not. It's okay. Um, On this side, we we actually can have constructive conversations and we won't call each other homophobes or racists or xenophobes. If you disagree with me, great. Tell me why. Let's Let's consider your opinion. All right, let's move on to the next <clears throat> topic here, my friends. Okay, my friends, what I want to do is I want to um, highlight some... I want to highlight Yuval Noah Harari. Um, you've, you guys have all heard specific uh, edited clips of him. Uh, what I wanted to do was give you his whole entire speech from the World Economic Forum. Now, he uh, he's very clever in the way he presents himself, but littered in this is their intention, uh, where they're going, and, and, and uh, <clears throat> how they're going to do it. Um, it, it's truly shocking to hear the whole thing. Uh, he tries to, about midway through, present himself as more of a democratic voice for reason. Uh, don't be fooled by that at all. Uh, to, to even consider some of the stuff that he's um, he's suggesting, uh, you've got to be a psychosociopath, uh, the combination of the two, and, and just have absolutely no remorse for your decisions. And then we'll probably cover another clip um, afterwards where he talks a little bit more about... Um, he doesn't come out and say vaccination, but he talks about surveillance under the skin. Um, so he, he lays hints, but he's smart enough not to just flat out say it. Um, but he tells you exactly what they're doing and where they're going with it. So let's, uh, let's focus on this next clip. Now it's quite, it's 26 minutes, roughly long, but like I said, I'd like to, I'd like to, instead of just give you the, the sound bites, I want you to hear the whole thing. Uh, because I took a lot more out of the whole thing than just the sound bites that I've heard before, like you. Um, and it's and it's neat to hear his whole presentation. So let's let's listen to this one, and then we'll listen to one more after it. And welcome to a conversation with Professor Yuval Noah Harari. My name's Gillian Tett. 
I'm the US Managing Editor of the Financial Times. Now, there are not many historians who would be put on the main stage of the Congress Center of the World Economic Forum, sandwiched between Angela Merkel and Macron. I think there are even fewer who could fill the room almost as much as Angela Merkel, and almost none who would have the experience as we were waiting in the green room and Angela Merkel came through, Chancellor Merkel came through, she, she took care to stop, go up to Yuval and introduce herself and say, I've read your book. Pretty amazing. But Yuval Harari has written two very important books which have really shaped the debate, not just inside governments, but inside many businesses and many non-governmental organizations too. One of them, I imagine most of you read, Sapiens. Hands up who in the room has read Sapiens? Okay, well, that is pretty impressive. His second book, Homo Deus, took those themes of Sapiens, looking at the history of mankind, threw it into the future, and looked at the issue of digital. He's got a third book coming out this summer, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is going to look at the present. But what he's going to be talking about today is something that actually Chancellor Merkel touched on in her own speech, which is a question of data. And what do we do about data today? His ideas are very provocative, very alarming, and something that all of you should pay very close attention to now. Professor Harari, Professor Yuval, the floor is yours. Thank you. So, hello everybody. Let me just have one minute to get friends with this computer and make sure everything is okay. And can I have a bit more light on the audience so I can see the faces and not just speak to a darkness? Thank you. So I want to talk to you today about the future of our species and really the future of life. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. These will be the main products of the economy, of the 21st century economy. Not textiles and vehicles and weapons, but bodies and brains and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. Those who control the data control the future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself. Because today, data is the most important asset in the world. In ancient times, land was the most important asset. And if too much land became concentrated in too few hands, humanity split into aristocrats and commoners. Then in the modern age, in the last two centuries, machinery 
replaced land as the most important asset. And if too many of the machines became concentrated in too few hands, humanity split into classes, into capitalists and proletariats. Now data is replacing machinery as the most important asset. And if too much of the data becomes concentrated in too few hands, humanity will split not into classes. It will split into species, into different species. Now, why is data so important? It's important because we've reached the point when we can hack not just computers, we can hack human beings and other organisms. There is a lot of talk these days about hacking computers and email accounts and bank accounts and mobile phones, but actually we are gaining the ability to hack human beings. Now what do you need in order to hack a human being? You need two things. You need a lot of computing power and you need a lot of data, especially biometric data. Not data about what I buy or where I go, but data about what is happening inside my body and inside my brain. Until today, nobody had the necessary computing power and the necessary data to hack humanity. Even if the Soviet KGB or the Spanish Inquisition followed you around everywhere 24 hours a day, watching everything you do, listening to everything you say, still, they didn't have the computing power and the biological knowledge necessary to make sense of what was happening inside your body and brain and to understand how you feel and what you think and what you want. But this is now changing because of two simultaneous revolutions. On the one hand, advances in computer science and especially the rise of machine learning and AI are giving us the necessary computing power. And at the same time, advances in biology and especially in brain science are giving us the necessary understanding, biological understanding. You can really summarize 150 years of biological research since Charles Darwin in three words. Organisms are algorithms. This is the big insight of the modern life sciences, that organisms, whether viruses or bananas or humans, they are really just biochemical algorithms. And we are learning how to decipher these algorithms. Now, when the two revolutions merge, when the infotech revolution merges with the biotech revolution, what you get is the ability to hack human beings. And maybe the most important invention for the merger of infotech and biotech is the biometric sensor that translates biochemical processes in the body and the brain into electronic signals that a computer can store and analyze. And once you have enough such biometric information and enough computing power, you can create algorithms that know me better 
than I know myself. And humans really don't know themselves very well. This is why algorithms have a real chance of getting to know ourselves better. We don't really know ourselves. To give an example, when I was 21, I finally realized that I was gay after living for several years in denial. And this is not exceptional. A lot of gay men live in denial for many years. They don't know something very important about themselves. Now imagine the situation in 10 or 20 years when an algorithm can tell any teenager exactly where he or she is on the gay-straight spectrum and even how malleable this position is. The algorithm tracks your eye movements, your blood pressure, your brain activity, and tells you who you are. Now maybe you personally... I would just like to point out <clears throat> that right there when he says the, the algorithm would be a, have the ability to track just how malleable this is. How does that fit into the globalist agenda, uh, you know, the, the trans agenda that we're seeing being pushed on our children? Just take that into account, my friends. Wouldn't like to make use of such an algorithm. But maybe you find yourself in some boring birthday party of somebody from your class at school, and one of your friends has this wonderful idea that I've just heard about this cool new algorithm that tells you your sexual orientation, and wouldn't it be very a lot of fun if everybody just takes turns testing themselves on this algorithm as everybody else is watching and commenting? What would you do? Would you just walk away? And even if you walk away, and even if you keep hiding from your classmates or from yourself, you will not be able to hide from Amazon and Alibaba and the secret police. As you surf the internet, as you watch videos or check your social feed, the algorithms will be monitoring your eye movements, your blood pressure, your brain activity, and they will know. They could tell Coca-Cola that if you want to sell this person some fuzzy, sugary drink, don't use the advertisement with the shirtless girl. Use the advertisement with the shirtless guy. Just stepping in for one more, one more brief second here. We already know they're doing that. They're monitoring your, everything that you surf, everything, everything you do digitally is being monitored and collected. In, in North America, it's by the NSA. doesn't matter if you're in Canada, the U.S., or Mexico, or South America, or anywhere else in the world, for that matter, the NSA is collecting it all. We know that already. So he's, he's, he's giving you insights here, masking it under future, on what's, what's going to happen in the future. So just when you're listening to him, just take into account that he's, he's actually telling you a lot of what they're already doing. Oh, that this was happening. But they will know. And this information will be worth billions. Once we have algorithms that can understand me better than I understand myself, they could predict my desires, manipulate my emotions, and even take decisions on my behalf. And if we are not careful, the outcome might be the rise of digital dictatorships. In the 20th century, democracy generally outperformed dictatorship because democracy was better at processing data and making decisions. We are used to thinking about democracy and dictatorship in ethical or political terms. 
But actually, these are two different methods to process information. Democracy processes information in a distributed way. It distributes the information and the power to make decisions between many institutions and individuals. The so what have you learned about Canada and the U.S. in the last six years, my friends? That you live in the, the illusion of democracy. That you are actually in a dictatorship. So what he's telling you right there, and I, this is just my conjecture, he's telling you right there that the illusion of democracy gives you gives, gives more, more power to collect your data, basically. Dictatorship, on the other hand, concentrates all the information and power in one place. Now, given the technological conditions of the 20th century, distributed data processing worked better than centralized data processing, which is one of the main reasons why democracy outperformed dictatorship and why, for example, the US economy outperformed the Soviet economy. But this is true only under the unique technological conditions of the 20th century. In the 21st century, new technological revolutions, especially AI and machine learning, might swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. They might make centralized data processing far more efficient than distributed data processing. And if democracy cannot adapt to these new conditions, then humans will come to live under the rule of digital dictatorships. And already at present, we are seeing the formation of more and more sophisticated surveillance regimes throughout the world, not just by authoritarian regimes, but also by democratic governments. The US, for example, is building a global surveillance system while my home country of Israel is trying to build a total surveillance regime in the West Bank. But control of data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, Elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. And if indeed we succeed in hacking and engineering life, this will be not just the greatest revolution in the history of humanity. This will be the greatest revolution in biology since the very beginning of life four billion years ago. For four billion years, nothing fundamental changed in the basic rules of the game of life. All of life, for four billion years, dinosaurs, amoebas, tomatoes, humans, all of life was subject to the laws of natural selection and to the laws of organic biochemistry. But this is now about to change. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design, 
and the intelligent design of our clouds. The IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. And at the same time, science may enable life after being confined to, for four billion years to the limited realm of organic compounds, science may enab enable life to break out into the inorganic realm. So after four billion years of organic life shaped by natural selection, we are entering the era of inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. This is why the ownership of data is so important. If we don't regulate it, a tiny elite may come to control not just the future of human societies, but the shape of life forms in the future. So how to regulate the data, the ownership of data? We have had 10,000 years of experience regulating the ownership of land. We have had a few centuries of experience regulating the ownership of industrial machinery. But we don't have much experience in regulating the ownership of data, which is inherently far more difficult because unlike land and unlike machinery, data is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It can move at the speed of light and you can create as many copies of it as you want. So does the data about my DNA, my brain, my body, my life, does it belong to me or to some corporation or to the government or perhaps to the human collective? At present, big corporations are holding much of the data and people are becoming worried about it. But mandating governments to nationalize the data may curb the power of the big corporations only in order to give rise to digital dictatorships. And politicians really, many politicians at least, are like musicians. And the instrument they play on is the human emotional and biochemical system. A politician gives a speech and there is a wave of fear all over the country. A politician tweets, and there is an explosion of anger and hatred. Now, I don't think we should give these musicians more sophisticated instruments to play on. And I certainly don't think they are ready to be entrusted with the future of life in the universe, especially as many politicians and governments seem incapable of producing meaningful visions for the future and instead, what they sell the public are nostalgic fantasies about going back to the past. And as a historian, I can tell you two things about the past. First of all, it wasn't fun. You wouldn't like to really go back there. And secondly, it's not coming back. So nostalgic fantasies really are not a solution. So who should own the data? I frankly don't know. I think the discussion has just begun. Most people, when they hear the talk about regula regulating data, they think about privacy, about uh, shopping, about 
companies, corporations that know where I go and what I, I buy, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are much more important things at stake. So the discussion has hardly began, and we cannot expect instant answers. We had better call upon our scientists, our philosophers, our lawyers, and even our poets, or especially our poets, to turn their attention to this big question. How do you regulate the ownership of data? The future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself, may depend on the answer to this question. Thank you. So you openly heard him admit that um, he, he and other people want to um, replace uh, the natural evolution of people, which would be uh, the design of the creator, God, whatever you want to title it, uh, with intelligent design, which would be them. Essentially, them creating or making themselves gods would be the way I would interpret that. He also goes on to uh, talk about how, you know, who should be in control of this. Well, this guy is employed by the World Economic Forum. So he does present things in a very um, graceful way. Uh, but I would suggest looking, you know, cutting through the grace and just seeing the underlying message. Now, we're going to go even deeper where... He, he goes, he goes into talking about, um, this is, this is a, another interview with him at Harvard, um, and he goes into talking about surveillance under the skin, which he didn't do at the World Economic Forum. So let's, let's listen to this next one as well. Until today, most surveillance was above the skin, and now it's going under the skin. What I mean by that is that until today, most surveillance, whether by corporations like Facebook or, or Amazon, or whether by governments, it was mostly about what you do in the world, where you go, who you meet, which TV shows you see, which news uh, you read online. But they didn't look under the skin what's happening inside your body, uh, inside your brain. Now, the main thing we want to know is actually inside the body. We want to know whether you're sick or not whether you have COVID-19, what's your body temperature, your blood pressure, your heart rate. And this changes the nature of surveillance. Of course, at present, the focus is just on the disease, but feelings are biological phenomena just like diseases. The same surveillance that can tell whether you have COVID-19 can also tell when you're angry, when you're joyful, when you're bored. So if you're now watching this interview and you have, say, a biometric bracelet on your wrist that monitors what's happening in your body, I could know whether you agree with me or not. It should be done by a dedicated special health authority. It shouldn't be the police or the secret police or the army. It should be a special dedicated health authority which just cares about epidemics and, and diseases and doesn't share the information with anybody else. I know that in recent years, we saw populist politicians undermining deliberately the trust that people have in important institutions like universities, like respectable media outlets. These populist politicians told people that, say, scientists are this small elite disconnected from the real people. You shouldn't believe them. And you had all these conspiracy theories that climate change is just a hoax, it's not real, and that the Earth is actually flat, and that vaccination 
conditions are bad for you, and this spread. But I don't think it's too late, especially in an emergency. People can change their views very fast, and they can discover hidden reservoirs of trust. You look in this crisis, who do people trust? They trust scientists above everything else in, in all countries. In Israel, they close down the synagogues. In Iran, they close the mosques. Churches all over the world are telling people don't come to church. The Pope is doing all these ceremonies on, on, on Zoom or YouTube. And why do they do all this? Because the scientists recommended it. Even the religious leaders have trust in the scientists in this moment of emergency. And I hope people will remember it after the crisis is over, that this is where you go to get really reliable information. This is who you trust in an emergency. Unfortunately, we are now seeing a lack of leadership in the world that it almost seems that there are no adults in the room. Like everybody is just taking care of their own immediate interests and nobody comes up with a plan for how humanity as a whole can deal with this crisis. And the country which was previously the world leader in the Ebola epidemic, in the global financial crisis of 2008, that's the United States, basically abdicated its position as global leader in the current administration. It made very clear to the world that America now cares only about itself, America first. And it's obviously not working also. America is now first in sick people and dead people. You look at the, at the, the statistics, America is first. So we don't have a leader. I hope that more and more people would realize that we can't defeat this crisis without effective global cooperation, that nationalism actually demands global cooperation. Because if you want to take care of your compatriots, you need to cooperate with foreigners until we eliminate this epidemic from all the countries. No country is safe. The biggest enemy we have now in this epidemic is not the virus. We can deal with the virus. The biggest enemy is our own inner demons, especially our hatreds. They are now coming up. If we can overcome our hatreds and cooperate on this, we can easily defeat the virus. Again, I, I'm, I'm doing these kind of interviews, not to predict the future, but to influence our decisions in the present. I want to help people understand the importance of global solidarity in this moment so that we make good decisions, that we develop compassion and solidarity and not hatred. And this will make it easier to defeat this epidemic and will also make it easier to deal with future crises. This is not the last crisis of the 21st century. There could be more epidemics. There are other problems like climate change. All of them will become worse if we now start competing and fighting among each other. All of them it will be easier to deal with if we now develop global solidarity. But on a more fundamental level, if you think about human nature, I don't think it will change. We are social animals. We like contact. When somebody is sick or in trouble, we usually rush to help them. This is some of our best instincts, to help our friends, our neighbors, or our family. And now the virus is using this against us. This is how the virus spreads by using the best parts of human nature against us. Luckily, we are unlike the virus, which is just a mindless piece of information. We have a mind, we can understand what's happening, and we can change our behavior in order to overcome this. Viruses or other pathogens that jump from animals to humans, from a bat to a human, initially, they are not well adapted to the human body. They are adapted to the body of a bat. What enables them to adapt to the human body and become more infectious or more deadly is mutations. 
Now, the longer the virus stays in a human body, anywhere on Earth, the higher the chances it will undergo a mutation which will make it more infectious or more deadly. We saw it, for example, with the Ebola epidemic of 2014. Again, initially, it, it came from bats. When the virus first came into humans, it was deadly, but it was not very infectious because it had difficulty entering human cells. And then the virus underwent a single mutation in one gene in one person somewhere in West Africa, which made the virus four times more infectious. And this started the real epidemic. And this can happen as we speak now. Maybe a similar thing is happening with coronavirus somewhere in Italy or Iran or Brazil or anywhere else in the world, making the virus more deadly or more infectious. And this is a danger to all humans. So as long as the virus spreads in any human population, nobody can really feel safe. So there you have it, my friends. You've basically listened to uh, Klaus Schwab's top advisor telegraph exactly what it is they're planning, uh, what it is they're already doing, and and how they're going to do it. Um, you know, he <laughs> at the end there, you heard him. You heard him go down the wet market theory uh, that that he he's still he's still pushing the fact that someone ate a bat from a wet market in China, and that's how uh, coronavirus jumped from from uh, animals to humans. We all know that it um, was given gain of function and it was released intentionally. But he also shed some light on the fact that the Ebola um, outbreak of 2014, he says it was from a bat as well. I've never seen that coincidence before, my friends. So what does that tell you? They've been playing with Ebola. They've been fucking around with Ebola and they've been releasing it onto populations in Africa. And he even tells you that in one mutation from one person, so they probably intentionally infected someone, pulled the sample from this person out, gave it gain of function, and then released it back into that population, and lo and behold, it spread like wildfire. Imagine that. But they got it under control. So what else does that tell you? <clears throat> they actually have an antidote for it, just like they did for COVID-19, which was probably ivermectin. We don't know what the globalist antidote probably was, but if you want my... Honest to God, it, guess it would be along the lines of a regiment like Z-Stack involving ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So they've also got a cure for Ebola. If you want me to read between the lines with you, that's exactly what he just told you. So he also tells you that there will be future pandemics coming down the road. Hmm, no surprise really. I, you know, I tipped more towards smallpox, but maybe they will release Ebola. Uh, the reason I tip more towards smallpox is because we had that uh, that intentional media release of that the fact that they found uh, a couple vials of smallpox in a, in an in abandoned freezer in Atlanta or wherever the hell it was. I think it was Atlanta. That's why I tip towards more towards smallpox because they they've already telegraphed that's that's what they probably will do next. But now that we know that they've been actually giving gain of function to Ebola, you never know. I guess it really depends on on us. If we start revolting, uh, if we start taking them down, you can bet your bottom dollar that they'll go with something. Uh, smallpox has, what, about a 30% uh, fatality rate, whereas Ebola would be as high as 60 to 65. Um, let's say we start gaining ground, the Great Awakening starts overtaking the Great Reset, and uh, people actually are starting to take the power back in specific areas. Which one do you think they'll release? That's, that's you know, it seems like we've got two options here. 
And they would. They would. You can bet your bottom dollar that these fucking globalist psychosociopaths would do that as a last Hail Mary to retain their power. So, but the one thing that you do know, or that we can assume, is the fact that they released it and then controlled the outbreak and then got it back, you know, got it, got it back under control, goes to tell you that there is, there is a cure. So just like when they released COVID-19 into the world, um, there was doctors and scientists as he claims, you know, everybody runs to, to scientists. Well, yes, we do, but we, we, we run, those of us that are awake, run to the ones that go against the grain, uh, point fingers at the fact that this, uh, especially when it comes to COVID-19, that it was probably a bioweapon, a two-stage bioweapon, first being the, the engineered virus and second being the shots, uh, the supposed cure, which ended up being worse than the actual virus. <clears throat> And then those doctors and scientists that we started listening to that were going against the grain started experimenting on <clears throat> on sick patients uh, using um, off-label or uh, going with uh, off-label uses for known drugs. And lo and behold, they basically found a cure. So it would be the same thing with Ebola because you know damn well the globalists aren't going to put themselves at risk. So they're going to play with pathogens that they know uh, they, they, they've already um, engineered a cure for it. The problem that they have is now they've got too much resistance in the, the medical and scientific fields. And there would be people that now knowing that these, these psychopaths are willing to um, endanger the entire global population just to retain power would work even quicker uh, with a more deadly pathogen. So I'm guessing, uh, you know what, I'd be, get, I'd be willing to bet that the cure would be very similar. Um, what do we know about antimicrobials now, my friends? What did you learn about ivermectin in the last two years? It is pretty much a wonder drug uh, that has the potential to even wipe out cancers. Could it deal with Ebola? I bet you it could. I bet you it could. Now you mix you mix that with uh, hydroxychloroquine and the rest of the the miracle meds that we know now exist through the fact that they they released pathogens onto the global population that we overlooked and didn't even know what they were capable capable of before it's unreal it's unreal and even on this show we've covered we've gone even deeper into this we know that there's actually a a dog heartworm medication called fenbendazole that has turned around specific people with um uh, uh fatally diagnosed with cancers like given given months to live uh took took experimentally took fenbendazole um, which is a dog heartworm medication and actually lived to tell the story and are still alive today uh, from it so there's actually other ones that we don't know about yet that have the potential to to do um, really good things within people off-label uses which of course now the globalists have pushed uh, all the world health health authorities against right it's a horse paste. Ivermectin's a horse paste. It's just a horse dewormer. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Those of you that have been listening to the show for a very long time, I'm a, wa- I'm a walking testament that Ivermectin works. I've been on it since the start of this outbreak. <laughs> um, and simply as a prophylaxis, I used it. And then uh, when I did, actually, when I did get Omicron, uh, I, I just upped my intake of it. I take it monthly. Uh, just as a as a prophylaxis for all this craziness, for all these globalist pathogens that we now are being subjected to. Um, and when I got Omicron, I just upped it to daily. <laughs> a cc and a half into a glass of water down every morning. And I walked through Omicron like it was nothing. <clears throat> anyway, my friends, um, I, I suggest you listen to... to um, <clears throat> 
to this you know this episode a few times because the the telegraphing of what they are doing and where they're going um is is absolutely phenomenal but by listening to uh Yuval Harari anyway my friends we better wind this one down so as always if you want to reach out to me you can find me on Facebook it's uh Canadian Patriot Radio the message button comes directly to me so if you have any information or if you want to expand on tonight's conversation feel free to reach out to me uh maybe you've got more clips uh stuff that I didn't cover feel free to uh send it my way if you prefer email it's Canadian Patriot Radio at gmail.com and as always, I, I, I encourage everybody to join the Telegram room. There's always an ongoing conversation there uh, of almost every topic you can possibly think of. <laughs> and uh, to find that page, it is uh, t.me backslash CPR underscore two. And if you prefer websites, it's CanadianPatriotRadio.ca. As always, thanks for tuning in, my friends. Um, if you like this show, give it a thumbs up and share it far and wide. It's only word of mouth that this show gets out. So if you like it, and you think that uh, some of your friends will like it, well, make sure you pass it their way. Until next time, my friends, in all thy sons, command. for joining us for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. CPR is not filmed before a live studio audience. If you like the show, friends, make sure you give us a thumbs up and share us on all your social media platforms. Until next time, take care.